You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We're continuing on in Acts. We come today to Acts chapter 6. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter. This is the shortest chapter uh, in Acts. It's only 15 verses. And uh, I've had some requests, a number of requests actually, to resume our traditional practice of standing for the reading of God's Word. Figured this would be an easy time to do it since a relatively short reading. Um, and uh, But to, I'll say, if, if, if you are not, not able to stand or if it's more comfortable for you to sit while, for the reading of God's Word, you're free to do that as well. So if you're able and willing, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> This is God's word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, when some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father of all mercies, silence our agendas now, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our minds, penetrate the corners of our hearts with your word that we may know you and love you and serve you because we are sinners in desperate need of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the idea that things were better in the past, that there's uh, a kind of golden age that we need to recapture, is, of course, one of the most common myths we uh, confront uh, all the time. And it is a myth. It's, you know, it's not entirely untrue, but it's largely a myth. Consider the history of our own country in the last, say, 150 years. Uh, a couple of interesting facts. At the beginning of the Civil War, uh, there were proportionally as many abortions being performed annually as there are today. Uh, in the 19th century, the age of sexual consent in many of uh, the states was uh, 9 and 10. Um, today, approximately two-thirds of Americans do not attend any kind of church. In the 19th century, that percentage was two-thirds. Yeah, it's funny. We just... we. We don't think that way. Now, go back further in history. Consider the culture that we're, we're in now as we, as we read through Acts, right? The Roman Empire uh, in the first century. In, in some sense, right, the height of civilization, uh, you know, the great Roman Empire. Uh, great literature, great art, uh, great peace, uh, great technology, great roads, uh, great commerce, um, uh, and yet a, a, a brutal uh, culture, a culture where life was cheap. And to give you a sort of an emotional sense of that, let me read to you a paragraph from a famous letter. Uh, it's, 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 it's famous because of its historical value. It was just, it's just a letter from a husband to his wife, uh, husband Hilarion to his wife Alice. He was a Roman citizen living in Alexandria, or posted in Alexandria. Uh, The year was 1 BC, so right at the beginning of the first century. And he writes a letter, which we found. It was written on papyrus uh, and sent to Alice. Uh, And it's a typical husband letter to a wife, you know, sort of breezy and newsy and, um, uh, you know, not really in touch with his feelings or anything like that. Um, And... uh, But you're just reading along, and then you come to this paragraph. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one. And as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it up to you. If by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, expose it. You know, hard to read that after baptizing Peyton. I mean, infanticide was... uh, common in the Roman Empire, especially uh, uh, exposing girls, um, and uh, it was a brutal time. Uh, life was cheap, uh, and we can thank the Christian church, actually, for, for, for uh, beginning to break that practice down. Um, uh, speaking of the church, thinking about the early, early church in that time, it was living in a brutal, tough culture, but surely things must have been better for the early church than they are for us, right? I mean, it was experiencing growth like we've never seen uh, in in our churches, right? This exponential, explosive uh, growth. Uh, and, And the preaching staff happened to be the apostles, right? The men who 
who had lived with Jesus, who had been taught by Jesus, the men who, uh, who were going around not just preaching, but, but doing signs and wonders very much like Jesus did. Um, you'd think, well, there's a church that must have it all together. I mean, when you've got that kind of preaching staff, you, you've got that, those kinds of spiritual gifts being exercised. You have that kind of growth. And yet, what do we read about here? Right? Serious sin problems. Sin problems within the church, uh, suffering and persecution without the church. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, what's going on here? Why? Well, big, big picture, it, it, for, for all of these things, right? This, it, 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 that uh, there is, there's the reality of sin in the human heart, right? And, and there is the, the reality of the persistence of demonic opposition to the gospel. Uh, it was true then, and it's true now. So, we're going to look at, at, at Acts chapter 6, and, and, and it, as you heard, it breaks down nicely. It cuts right in two. The first half deals with the choice of the seven servers, and then the second half deals with one of those servers, Stephen, um, and his the persecution. What I want to do with you is just break these things down, unpack each part, and, 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 and identify some applications, things, ways that these, this first century experience can speak to you and me uh, in the 21st century, okay? So the first part is the uh, choice of the seven servers. That's verses 1 through 7. Um, now, what was the problem that led to uh, the need for these seven uh, servers? Well, there were two serious sin problems going on in the church. The first one was, in a word, racial and prejudice, right? Racial, racial cultural prejudice. Uh, the, the Hellenistic, excuse me, the he- Hebraic Christian Jews, that is, the Jews that were native to Israel that spoke Aramaic and Hebrew uh, who were uh, raised largely in the Jewish culture uh, were responsible. Actually, it was the apostles who were most likely the ones responsible for the daily distribution of food to the widows. Uh, And those apostles, largely Hebraic Christian Jews, uh, were, were neglecting, that is, food wasn't getting to the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. Now, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians were, were Jews that, of the diaspora, right? Jews that had, uh, be, because of the dispersion of the Jews during the exiles and whatnot, uh, had, had grown up in a community outside of Israel. And, they, and there were Jewish Jewish settlements all over the Mediterranean. So these were these were Jews who were uh, who who, prob- who spoke Greek and, and were much more in, in, in part of the Greco-Roman culture than they were the Israel culture. Okay, um, but Jews who had come to Christ. So so you've got these essentially Jewish Christians that are in, you know come out of the Jewish culture. You've got. You've got Jewish Christians who come out of the Greek culture. 
Jewish Christians are neglecting the Greek, the widows, uh, these Greek Christian widows. Okay? Greek-influenced Christian widows. Systemic neglect based on prejudice. That's, that's the first sin, and it's a serious one. Um, the second sin is even that even though these Hellenistic Jewish Christians had been the target of this prejudice, they responded to that sin, that sin of prejudice, sinfully. Uh, they responded in a way uh, that made the problem worse. Um, it, it, our translation sort of, sort of smooths it out. In verse 1 it says, um, a complaint of the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Literally it says this, there was a murmuring or there was a grumbling of the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Um, and Luke picks that word very deliberately. That's the same Greek word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the backbiting Israelites' reaction to Moses in the Exodus. It's, a, it's an effect gossip, right? They were, they, they were targets of this sin, and yet they didn't confront it. They didn't go to the person the persons who were sinning against them. Uh, instead, they talked behind their backs. It's, it's gossip, what, what one commentator calls uh, pornography of the mouth. Uh, and he calls it pornography of the mouth because he says it seeks the same thing that a lustful fantasy seeks, a cheap thrill at another person's expense while making zero effort to honestly connect with or commit to that person. Now think about that. That's a great definition of, of lust, right? Uh, it, it, to a cheap, or, or you know, a pornography, a cheap thrill at another person's expense while making zero effort to connect with that person. And, and it's the same with gossip. It's, a, it's that cheap thrill of talking about someone behind his or her back at that person's expense while making zero effort to honestly connect with or commit to that person. So... They responded to the sin sinfully, creating, making a, a bad situation worse, you know, contributing to potential division here, division that could have ripped this new church uh, apart. Uh, you know, racial prejudice is a bad sin. Uh, it, it is no small sin, but neither is gossip. So that's the problem. Now, how did it get solved? Well, as soon as the apostles heard about it, we don't know how they heard about it, they took it head on, didn't they? Uh, and in some ways, what Luke doesn't say here makes, is, is significant. Um, you know, there's no indication that the apostles, who were likely the ones responsible for the daily distribution of the food to these widows, there was no hint that they, of any anger at, at being called out for, for their sin, for their error. Uh, there was, there's no hint of any self-defensiveness or self-justification on the part of their, the apostles. They, they faced up to it, admitted to it, uh, and then acknowledged the importance of the issue by saying, well, look, we, um, this is so important and we have responsibilities to, to do, uh, to teach and preach and pray. Why don't we focus on that? That's really what the Lord 
called us to, and let's find seven men who will uh, who, who can take over the responsibility of distributing food uh, to the widows. This is not saying we're doing the important thing and let's let's ditch this unimportant thing. They they had been doing both. Uh, it, it, it's it's just that uh, you know. Uh, obviously they hadn't done it right, and, and now was the time to fix it. And they said, let's find seven men. And not just any seven men, right? Men of good reputation, men uh, of good wisdom, and men, it says, full of the Spirit, which probably means they had good character, character shaped by the Holy Spirit. These were men who exhibited love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, humility, faithfulness, self-control. Um, so, and what's interesting is that the disciples don't control, the, the apostles didn't control the process. The, control was, was not a big issue for them. They, they call the whole congregation together and they say, here's the idea, let's get seven men to do this. They don't appoint the seven men. They don't insist on membership in this committee. Right? They say, Congregation, you pick out the seven men. No, right? The apostles did, didn't didn't insist on control, didn't insist on playing a part, and in fact, they didn't play a part. Something you might miss here is that the names of these seven men who were appointed were all Greek. They're all Greek names. So the congregation thought, well, you know, the the, the ones that have been hurt here are the Hellenistic Christian Jews. Uh, let's let's give the solution to the Hellenistic Christian Jews. Uh, and not only can they solve the problem, but they will now take the distribution of food to both the Jewish Christians and to the Greek Christians. Right? The Greek Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. Um, so, um, it was uh, a, a really kind of a humble approach to this whole thing. Um, so what are some applications for us in the 21st century? Okay. I, f- let me just quickly identify four, I think. First one, preaching and teaching and ministries of mercy right, uh, are both important and they're both necessary. You know, we need both. Uh, there is not a hint here that one is more important than the other. Uh, Jesus did both. Jesus called on us to do both. And it is interesting to note that Luke notes here that when the church got its act together, started doing it right, with the apostles focusing on prayer and, and preaching and the seven focused on, the, on mercy ministry to the widows, what happened? It says the word of God grew. It says increased in our translation, but the, it literally is grew. The word of God grew, which I like because that's more in line with how Jesus talked. How, you know, it was, everything's organic and it, was, it starts like a seed and, and becomes like a tree. Uh, and then, um, so, you, so you have this, the, the word of God growing and you have the number of converts greatly multiplying. Uh, so, so, you know, whatever church you're a part of, you know, whether it's this one or some other one, make sure that there is a, 
an intentional balance of, of word and deed ministry. Both are important. And, and they, you can't be screwed. It can't be all word and it can't be all deed. It has to be both. Okay. Second, uh, godly Christian leadership is about Jesus, not about the leaders. There's some, there's some politicians that could learn these lessons. So Christian leaders, right, whether they're in the church or wherever they're exercising Christian leadership, should not be grasping for control and they should not be in a situation where they are refusing to let go of control. But rather, it, Christian leadership involves a robust delegation of, of ministry, a sharing of ministry responsibilities according to people's gifts in the recognition that we are all ministers. I'm not just, I'm not the minister here. I'm one among many ministers. I'm exercising my gifts. You need to be exercising yours. Um, and there ought to be in godly Christian leadership the kind of humility we see with the apostles here. Uh, a humility that's willing to admit mistakes and failure and grace to those who make their own mistakes uh, and failures. That's godly Christian leadership. Third, how you and I treat the most vulnerable people is important to God. We talked about this last week. Any kind of ministry that is directed at the cool people, the happening people, at the expense of the needy people, the marginalized people, the vulnerable people, is a ministry that God will not honor. How we treat the most vulnerable is important to God. And then finally, fourth, you can be saved and not be in the church, but you can't be a growing, maturing Christian and not be in the church. The church is God's means by which He grows us and matures us. Um, you know, it's, and changes us. It's like marriage. I mean, you, if you, any of you who are married know that you, when you, you came into a marriage and, uh, you know, you thought you were pretty good, pretty okay. But then uh, when you, you come together in this covenant relationship, right, and you're living with each other and you are rubbing against each other and you're rubbing the hard edges and the rough corners off of each other. Well, we grow, we mature, we change, we get better, right? And it, that only happens as we interact in community. That's exactly what's supposed to happen in the church as we help each other and correct each other and apologize to each other. And these things don't happen unless you're here. You know, the church worked through this, this serious problem with the, the food distribution to the widows. Something that could have destroyed the church. The church worked through it. Confronted that sin. Worked through it. Came to a solution. And I'm sure it was stronger, as Luke suggests it was, it was stronger afterwards for the struggle. It was more mature for the struggle. 
We're not as strong as we could be because uh, some of you aren't here. Now, you're going, wait a minute, Ted, I'm here. You're looking at me. I'm I'm looking into the camera now. Do you live stream people I'm talking to? Um, Listen, C.S. Lewis said something really profound in his book, The Four Loves, about friendship that that really is on point here. Um, He was reflecting on the death of a friend uh, named Charles. And, And Lewis says this, In each of my friends, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can bring out. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a characteristic Charles joke. Right? Far from having more of Ronald, having him now to myself that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Isn't that insightful? Right? He's got less of Ronald because there is something that only Charles could pull out of Ronald. And he won't see that again because Charles isn't there. Friends, we have less of each other without each of us here. I I need to look in the camera. We have less of each other. Right? Without each of us here. If you haven't come back after the great reset, now's the time. We need you. We need you. Okay, that's the, that's the first one. Let's go to the second part of Acts chapter 6, the, the, this, uh, which focuses on one of the seven, who is obviously an exceptional guy. He's, he, he, he's the one who is described more fully than the others, Stephen. Um, and uh, this is verses 8 through 15. And we're seeing a second demonic strategy here, aren't we? Um, it, First, the devil tries to divide believers. That's a common one. Tries to to get us uh, infighting. Fighting one another within, right? To to lose our our witness and our effectiveness. Uh, And now second, he does something else. He brings pressure and opposition from outside the church in the form of persecution. That's what's going on with Stephen. Um, it's clear from this that Stephen, though he was appointed to this task of, uh, among the seven of distributing food to the widows, he's doing much more than that, right? In verse 8 it says that he's, uh, he, he's very much like an apostle. He's, he's doing great sign, wonders and signs among the people, it says. And, and no, no one, no Christian would do us who had the gift of doing those wonders and signs would do those wonders and signs like a magic show, right? Those would always be accompanied by teaching and preaching, right? Giving the significance uh, of the sign. Uh, So so Stephen's very much like an apostle as well as a deacon. Uh, He's out there preaching, doing signs and wonders. uh, And because of that, uh, and the impact he's having in Jerusalem, uh, some, some Jews, uh, 
from this synagogue, a particular synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, there's some debate as to whether that's referring to one synagogue or more than one. Um, these are clearly Hellenistic Jews, not Jewish Christians, Hellenistic Jews, uh, who, uh, who, who heard in, in his teaching, Stephen's teaching, a threat to traditional Jewish religion. Um, and uh, by the way, that synagogue of the freedmen uh, includes an area that includes the city of Tarsus. So there is some speculation that that synagogue may have been the synagogue of Saul of Tarsus himself, uh, who goes on to become, of course, Paul the Apostle. Um, so uh, what do they do? Uh, they're concerned th- about his teaching, so they invite him to a public debate. Bad move, uh, right? Because uh, Stephen owned them in that debate in verse 9. It says that uh, they could not withstand his wisdom or the Holy Spirit uh, uh, by which he was speaking. Um, and I just want to pause there because this should encourage you. Because this is, this is an absolute direct fulfillment of a promise Jesus made uh, to his disciples and and to us, uh, and that is that it, you know in t- in moments in the moment of persecution, when, if you're if you're ever being persecuted for your faith and and you're brought up and on charges and you and you have to stand there and that moment comes when you have to give a defense uh, uh, of your faith, um, Jesus said, Luke twenty one fifteen, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Yeah, boy, take heart there, right? Um, And that's direct fulfillment, exactly what we see happening with Stephen. So when they couldn't beat Stephen into debate, uh, they kick it up a notch, right? the, The Greek verbs here suggest that what they did was bribe witnesses to lie about him. Uh, and that uh, sets in motion uh, a process by which he was ultimately arrested and put on trial. Um, I was th- I was reflecting on Stephen's experience here, and uh, thinking about my own life. I have been publicly lied about twice in my life. Uh, once uh, by an attorney relating to what I did as an attorney. Um, and you kind of expect that from an attorney. <laughs> but, um, and once relating to things I allegedly said as a minister of the gospel. Uh, it's tough to take. You know, being accused, publicly accused of lying is always tough to take. And few things I have ever experienced arouse, have aroused more frustration and more anger and more self-defensiveness, more desire to self-justify, and more desire to attack the liar. If Stephen felt those things, and I'm sure he did, if he was human, uh, he did not act on them, right? In fact, the only thing we see at this point, or hear at this point, is the silence of Stephen uh, as he sits uh, and listens, uh, and yet people notice that there's something going on, right? He's, uh, 
he, he undergoes some kind of personal transfiguration. I don't want to speculate on what that is. It apparently relates to his faith. Um, they see something otherworldly about him. Whatever it was, it's, it's suggestive of Moses' experience, right? Moses had a similar personal transfiguration experience that was the result of, of Moses' intimacy with God. You know, Moses had an intimate relationship, intimate friendship with God, and, and because of that, he, you know, he could have peace and strength and calm and self-control when he's being attacked. Uh, and... and you see, very much see the same thing in Stephen here, right? There's a, there's a calmness, a strength, a peace about him, even when he is just being unfairly and untruthfully uh, uh, attacked. As we'll see next week, actually, though, the, the, this, this transfiguration, whatever it is, actually is not the biggest evidence or the most significant evidence of Stephen's uh, intimacy with the Lord because when you get to the end of his trial, the end of his testimony at the trial in Acts 7 um, what you see is Stephen praying for the people who lied about him praying for them as they are stoning him in his execution there is strength, there is peace there is self-control right that comes from uh, a relationship with God. Now, what are some applications here for us in the 21st century? Let me give you three, again, quickly. And for the first one, I'm going to hat tip to Dennis Johnson again, former pastor here, uh, professor at Westminster Seminary, former professor at Westminster Seminary, written a couple of books on Acts. I'll just uh, paraphrase him here. God doesn't promise that testifying about his truth will be risk-free. Hear that? God does not promise that you testifying about his truth will be risk-free, nor that your witness about Jesus will be welcomed with an open mind. What God does assure you, however, is that his word accomplishes the mission on which he sends it out, And that when witnessing brings you suffering, God's strength will shine, especially through your weakness. When you're suffering because of your witness of Christ, God's strength will especially shine through uh, your weakness, right? The gospel flips the world's uh, the script of the world on its head, right? The world says you have to be strong to be successful and effective. The gospel says it's in your weakness that God is strong. So lean on Him. Lean on Him. And know that in those times when you feel weak and you are weak, that, that's, that's God's playground. Hang on. That's when you'll see His power. Second, application. You can't judge the significance or the success of a life by the world's standards of success or significance or by the length of a life. Stephen's going to become the first martyr of the Christian church. This trial that starts here in Acts 6 
which we will read about in Acts 7, uh, ends in his execution, which is supervised by none other than Saul of Tarsus. And there is no doubt that what Saul of Tarsus saw that day when he watched Stephen, when he supervised the execution of Stephen, was, was, was used by the Holy Spirit uh, to, in, in his conversion process to become not Saul of Tarsus, but Paul the Apostle. Um, in, his, in Stephen's testimony at his trial, which we'll look at next week, and in his subsequent execution, he laid down the theological and practical foundation for the next step in the Great Commission. It was because of Stephen that the gospel for the first time blows out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends uh, of the earth. Stephen, by his dying, moves the church out. I was, I was thinking about people like Ann Judson and uh, William Borden and uh, Jim Elliott, right? Three Christian missionaries who died young, leaving so much work undone. The world would look at the, the, them and say, ah, what a waste. And yet those three in their deaths inspired thousands, thousands of people, men and women, to go, uh, to go with the gospel out into the world. They inspired mission movements. Your, ser- your service to Jesus, my service to Jesus, may be to die. But remember, Christian friends, because of Jesus' death and resurrection for you, your death is not the end of you. It's not the end of your story. And, and it means that your death is never meaningless and that Jesus can and will use your death in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. So don't be afraid. Be bold. And then third and finally, you know, I can't read what happened and I suspect you can't either, can't read what happened to Stephen without thinking about Jesus. There's so many parallels here, right? Um, Jesus was brought up on charges. He, he faced false witnesses. He was lied about. His words were twisted. Uh, and in fact, the charges against Stephen are, are, are practically almost verbatim echoes of the charges levied against Jesus, right? Jesus was, was th- accused of, of threatening to destroy the temple and, and to bring down the, the Mosaic law. Same thing Stephen was accused of. Um, of course, what Jesus meant was that uh, these good things that God has put in place, like the temple, and, and, and uh, was, were going to be superseded uh, by him, right? The, the temple would be superseded. It would be obviated. Why? Because he's the, new, he's the new temple. He's the new place you go to meet God. In Jesus. Right? Uh, Jesus would obviate the, the need for the law's sacrificial system. Right? Killing those lambs and goats and bulls. Thousands of them every year. All that would be obviated. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. 
And Jesus would die, like Stephen. But Jesus died as the God-man, meaning that his death, because he has, he has, he's God, his death has infinite value. His death counts for more than himself. Counts for you, counts for me. And the priesthood, he'd obsolete the priesthood, why, not only because Jesus was the sacrifice, but because he was, he, he, he was also the priest. And he still is the priest. Stephen sees him as he's dying, right? He sees a vision of heaven, and there is Jesus standing at the right hand of God, interceding for Stephen. And friends, Jesus is there right now, interceding for you as your high priest. So Stephen here should remind you and me of what Jesus did for us and what he continues to do for us as our living and resurrected Lord and Savior. When you think about Jesus, friends, and do, think deeply about him, who he is, what he did, why he did what he did. If you do that, you cannot but help be moved to be bold, to be fearless in our living and our witnessing for him. How can we do anything less for Jesus in light of what he did for us? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. For, Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for these lessons from, from the first century church. Help us to hear them and apply them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.